You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility and just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepker. So there have been some positive developments in the UK with the virus. More than 75% of adults have now received two COVID jabs. Boris Johnson described that milestone as a huge national achievement. But COVID deaths are edging up again with 146 recorded yesterday. And the government's been warned that herd immunity is not possible because the Delta variant is still spreading fast and infecting fully vaccinated people. Booster jabs are next in sight. The UK has ordered 35 million doses of the Pfizer jab for apparently the cost of a billion pounds for a campaign to be held in the autumn of next year. That, according to The Times. Meanwhile, the A-level debate rumbles on. There have been calls for an urgent reform of the exam system to combat grade inflation. There are concerns state school pupils are getting left behind as the grade gap widens with private schools. The Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, is reportedly in danger of being replaced. And there are suggestions that reforms to the A-level system may include shifting to a numbered grading system, uh, the one that is currently used for GCSEs. Now, our guest today is Kevin Brennan, Labour MP for Cardiff West. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Welcome to the programme. Uh, Let's talk about the comparisons which are being made quite widely between the way that the pandemic has been handled in England and the way it's been handled in several of the other nations, not least, of course, Wales, where over last weekend you've come out of uh, very strict restrictions, somewhat less restrictions now. What do you make of the English government's response to the pandemic? How do you think it compares to what Mark Drakeford has been doing in Wales? Is there anything could be learned, perhaps, from the other home nations? Well, I think there is. I think devolution actually gives an opportunity for us to learn about different approaches. I think the, uh, I think the UK government, the problems in, in the case of the Prime Minister, uh, and in comparison with Mark Drake, I think Mark has always tried to be faithful to the facts and not a hostage to the headlines. And it always feels, in the approach that's taken by the UK government under Boris Johnson, that he's more concerned about what the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph will say about Freedom Day and all this sort of nonsense, rather than actually paying close attention to the facts and proceeding, you know, in a cautious way to keep people safe. And that's the approach that Mark Drakeford's taken uh, under the Welsh Labour government in uh, Cardiff. And 
actually it has proved very successful, both in terms of you know the, the kind of data around COVID and also vaccine rollout, the amount of money spent on test and trace because they use local government rather than uh, you know going to private contractors and so on. So there are lots and lots of things that could be learned if the UK government uh, were willing just to take a little look over Offers Dyke at what um, what Mark Drakeford's been doing in Cardiff. Yeah, I've heard this argument a number of times um, before. The only thing that I would say in response to that, though, is um, the government in Westminster has much greater responsibility for a broader number of things. So in some ways, is it not easier for people like Mark Drakeford to handle the specific pandemic issues? Because things like revenue raising, economic impact and NHS funding are not his responsibility. They are the prime minister's. Well, they impact upon his responsibilities, though, because the amount of money that is available to spend on the NHS and so on in, in Wales is determined by the UK budget under the Barnett formula. So it, all of that has a big you know, impact on what can be done. He's given the resources, if you like, and he has to get on and do it. And I think the, the key factors have been, as I said, first of all, uh, you know, a much more uh, approach based on being faithful to the facts and being you know, cautious and thinking about protecting people. Yes, of course, the economy is important, but the government's wasted huge amounts of resources at a UK level on going out to private, you know, all sorts of private contractors that were unsuitable for things like PPE, uh, wasting huge amounts of money, uh, you know, in the way that they commissioned uh, the, uh, the, 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 the calling and testing and tracing and so on, rather than using the existing public health uh, facilities available through local authorities. It's almost been an ideological approach by the UK government that everything has to be farmed out to private tender at vast cost. And if you look at the the, the data and, and the audits of, of what's gone on between the two governments, I, I think the approach that's been taken in Cardiff has been more successful because of the factors that I've mentioned, uh, nothing to do with the, the fact that the, the budget is determined at a UK level. Kevin, I suppose all this has spoken very much to the, uh, the different ways in which it works in the home nations in the sense that you are, uh, you, you, Welsh, Welsh people are represented twice. They have someone in the Senate, they have someone in the uh, Parliament in London as well. Now, your uh, parallel is Mark Drakeford, in fact, in the Senate. Uh, how well do you work together? How does that whole system play out, particularly when it's tested by something like COVID? Well, it's, um, it's a very interesting question. Uh, it, it, it actually depends on the personal relationships, you know, that, that, that exist if you represent the same constituency as we do. Uh, and in our case, um, we work very closely together and run a joint office and try to provide a seamless sort of approach and service to the public. It's not always the case, even within political parties, when the same party represents the same constituency, that, that everyone has that kind of, um, you know, very good relationship. That's just, you know, the way that politics is and the way personalities are. Um, but generally speaking... Uh, you know, there are responsibilities at a Welsh level for things like the health service, uh, which, you know, education, which are determined, uh, you know, in Cardiff. Uh, but but MPs, nevertheless, I think, feel free to speak out on any subject, you know, from anywhere in the world, effectively, because that's our role, even if we don't have direct responsibility for the delivery of things like education and health um, in Wales. Um, you're also, uh, by the by, a big music fan, a member of a rock band. How do you think that the music industry has been treated during this pandemic? Has actually enough been done um, in terms of live music and, and supporting artists? Well, it's um, it's been 
too little too late, generally speaking, from the government with regard to that. I'm also a member of the the, the, um, the Culture Select Committee, and we've done a lot of work on, on issues around live and recorded music. And one of the things we were calling for many months ago, for example, was for there to be uh, you know government underwritten insurance for live events like festivals and so on well in advance of this summer because the private market you know simply wouldn't insure against the possibility of covid restrictions which is in obviously the hands of the government finally the government has done something about that now but in the meantime many many events which could have taken place and important jobs which you know could have been sustained have been lost as a result and and to take a further example um complicated by brexit the whole issue of touring around Europe has been extremely badly handled by the government. Well in advance of Brexit, they promised that there would be no impediments to people to continue touring around Europe freely, um, you know, as musicians and so on. And yet we have, despite what the government said last week about it being easy in 19 countries, we still have an extremely complicated, expensive and bureaucratic situation. So I think, although some efforts have been made, um, usually it's been categorised as things being done too little too late. And I mean, in a similar area, obviously not affecting necessarily by COVID or, or, or the, what's happened with Brexit, but the streaming issue is very, very keen. I know you have a private member's bill that seeks to change copyright laws around streaming. Just walk us through that. Yes, I mean, people these days listen to music mainly by streaming it through a service like Spotify or even on the internet through things like YouTube and so on, rather than uh, necessarily, you know, buying records or downloading even, which was the previous thing people did with and purchase their music digitally, you know, on, on services like iTunes. And as a result of that, um, lots and lots of old contracts, which were about physical products being shipped all around the world, are being applied by the music industry to streaming, where there is no cost of distribution effectively for, for people's music. So musicians are not getting paid the, the, the full value that they should get for their music uh, being streamed. And what's more, services like Spotify and so on say that their ultimate aim is to, is to replace uh, services like radio, where lots of people listen to music on the radio because they can effectively have things called Spotify yeah. Radio now, where, where it'll actually play you music over a period of time. Now, currently, musicians actually get something when their music's played on the radio. They don't get an extra payment when their music is played on Spotify. So my yeah. bill really would put that right and make sure musicians were properly remunerated. Okay, so that on the music industry. Um, a, a last um, thought, though, big picture. Labour was triumphant in the recent Welsh election. What lessons then for Keir Starmer um, as leader? Well, I think um, that there are some some good lessons from Welsh Labour, uh, namely that if you you know show a sort of pragmatic idealism and not be a factionalist you know party divided you know against itself as Labour tends to be sometimes. Um, that you can get electoral success. And in a way, Welsh Labour, but the trend on a night which, you know, put Keir Starmer under a lot of pressure because of the Hartlepool by-election, unfortunately, the timing of that meant people missed, actually, that in Wales, Labour had had uh, its best ever results uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the Welsh Senate. Uh, and I think the lesson from that is that the Labour Party needs to be united. It needs to try and build a coalition of voters, you know, based on pragmatic idealist politics, if you like, that are about uh, things like, you know, equality, about having a successful economy based on fairness and so on, rather than factional infighting. And I think if Kia learns that lesson, it'll be a, a good lesson to learn from the next general election. Still the right man to lead you into the next election? I think so. I think that, um, you know, it's a tough job. 
leader of the opposition has been called the worst job in the world, and I think that's probably true. And to pick it up after our worst electoral performance in terms of seats in the House of Commons for many, many decades is not an easy task. He's in the foothills of the Himalayas, if you like, and there's going to be some landslides, avalanches, obstacles to get over in the meantime. But I think Kia has the right stuff and the determination to lead Labour forward into the next election, and I'll certainly be supporting him. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Well, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. The Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, is calling for more investment in the NHS. He told Sky News that the Treasury uh, should add to the government's plan to channel investment into new hospitals and health staff, putting pressure on the Chancellor ahead of the autumn budget. In their 2019 election manifesto, the Conservatives committed to funding 40 new hospitals and to upgrading 20 more. But Javid thinks that more investment is needed in light of the pandemic. Meanwhile, the affordability of city living has worsened. House prices have surged more than 10% over the past year, setting a buyer back by more than eight times average earnings. That's according to research by Halifax. When it comes to the most affordable place to live, Londonderry keeps the title for the third year in a row. Winchester is the least affordable city, replacing Oxford, with homes there now costing 14 times annual earnings. And there's more scrutiny of David Cameron's work since leaving office. The Times reports that Cameron's employer, Illumina, secured a £123 million genetic sequencing contract after the former Prime Minister lobbied Matt Hancock to attend a genetics conference. Cameron is a paid advisor to Illumina, a US biotech firm that uses technology that can screen DNA for genetic illnesses. So the report comes as Cameron is under pressure to address his rewards for lobbying for Greensill. Well, let's pick up on that with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Therese, thanks for being with us today. Now you've got a great piece out on the terminal talking about the ways in which former prime ministers could or should make loads of money, of course, in the light of the Cameron Greensill affair. Uh, I mean, I suppose a key point in all this is to what extent can you actually restrict them? Because in the end, once they've left office, they're free people. They can do what they like. Yeah, I think there are precedents for uh, restricting the scope of what a, a, an ex-senior um, elected official can do after office. Um, I mean, already there is a, a two-year sort of cooling off period before they can, um, you know, take on uh, an employee role. And so, you know, perhaps uh, one idea is you extend that to five years at something institute for government support. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, if you look at David Cameron, when 
when he was, uh, you know, running the Conservative Party, a lot of the current cabinet might have, you know, were were junior to him. He would have been their boss. So two years on, you know, these are people that would happily pick up the phone and and maybe more responsive to the lobbying from uh, their former boss and, and prime minister. If you waited another few years, you know, those ties are a little bit weaker. And so that's one way of kind of ensuring that, you know, that the influence peddling, um, you know, that there's some some constraints on that and and some checks and balances. But the real way to do it is, is, is making sure that there is as much transparency as possible when it comes to who ministers meet uh, and what's discussed. And that's simply a matter of having um, a, a rigorous register, as the European Commission does, as Canada does. Um, and the U.K. standards, while they were strengthened, ironically, under David Cameron, they're still, you know, far uh, behind these other places and, and, and just, frankly, not really fit for purpose uh, because they were unable to to catch the kind of lobbying we saw uh, with Cameron and, and, and Greensill Capital. Um, I mean, is this one argument just to pay the Prime Minister more? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been toying with that idea as well, because it's it, it, the UK doesn't necessarily pay its politicians particularly well. I mean, MPs are, um, uh, you know, making uh, around, uh, I think, 80,000 a year. The prime minister, about 161,000. Um, other countries will pay them a bit more. I mean, obviously, you know, $10 million in two years for part-time work, as David Cameron is alleged to have earned, um, uh, you know, th- there's no sort of tax budget in the world that's going to co- cover that kind of a um, of, of compensation if that's what a uh, official is determined to try to earn. But you know, I think it does go some way to answering this question of you know, you know, can you attract the most skilled and talented people at all level of politics? Can you remunerate them in a way that reduces the incentive of just you know trying to cash in as much as possible afterwards? Which is really a trend, and in, in particularly in British politics, you get the uh, you know writing the books and the speaking fees and and the boards because a lot of prime ministers retire as Tony Blair did, as Golden Brown did, as David Cameron did, quite young. But I suppose there's someone currently in Downing Street who might be thinking possibly through some of this. I mean, all political rigor careers come to an end eventually, and it's no secret that, that he certainly feels that his uh, current income isn't quite uh, what he needs. Uh, there's been several instances of being uh, given money uh, to redecorate his flat, for example, and things of that <laughs> nature. Um, so I suppose, you know, this is something that could be really significant in a few years' time, even more than it is already. Yeah, I mean, I think this presents two kinds of problems for Boris Johnson. So the first is, you know, does he change the rules and regulations now, um, given the embarrassment to his party, you know, from Cameron's lobbying, but also, you know, from um, other uh, uh, allegations of cronyism, such as around the PPE contracts and the test and tracing. And if he does that, how does it tie his hands, as you say, for when he leaves office? I mean, Boris Johnson has made no secret of the fact that he feels um, strapped for cash, that he has a lot of expenses, and that he in that he took a, a quite a big pay cut when he became prime minister. I mean, I think you know the thing we know about Boris Johnson is he, he's 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 pretty good at doing what he wants, um, you know, regardless of what others do. <laughs> or believe is um, is appropriate. So I think, you know, we could expect him to find ways to maximize income streams, but he will certainly take David Cameron's experience as a, as a cautionary tale because um, it's been reputation-destroying uh, for Cameron, and uh, 
you know, Johnson will want an income stream that that endures for probably a lot longer. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so that on lobbying. What about uh, on the pandemic issue? Um, the idea of herd immunity that now seems to be sort of rejected, at least by one leading scientist. Um, what does that mean for the UK going forwards as we rely on, on vaccines now? Yeah, I think there's a broader realization now that this idea of herd immunity, the goal that a lot of people thought was attainable, you know, back last winter and and and, uh, and in the autumn, is no longer uh, viable. I mean, a, part, a large part of the reason is because the Delta variant has just proved so highly transmissible, and the vaccines we have, while hugely effective against uh, serious illness, hospitalization, death, um, are only about 60% effective in some cases against uh, getting the virus at all. So, you know, we really are looking at a virus that's going to be with us for, you know, really the foreseeable future, um, and that and that does have implications because it means while we can lift restrictions. Um, um, we can't be completely, uh, you know, we can't be completely relaxed about transmission. So, for example, uh, masking uh, is is something that, you know, a lot of people would like to just dump their masks and not wear them at all. And yet we know that masks are helpful in reducing transmission and, and, and may need to be retained in certain settings, certainly for public transport. Um, but whether we'll see them in, say, large-scale venues and, and places that are crowded, I think is a question. Um, and the government will also have to keep the door open to restoring some restrictions if, for example, we get a terrible flu season on top of uh, heightened transmission or if we get a variant that breaks through the vaccine. So there's going to be a certain elasticity in these uh, levels of restrictions and people will have to get used to that. And speaking of things that uh, we haven't seen the back of, I guess the educational deficit is a big part of that, occasioned, of course, by the pandemic. And perhaps that was crystallised by the A-level results coming out yesterday, a sense of grade inflation, but also a sense that this particular cohort is going to be going through the education system for some time to come, all of whom have lost a great deal of their education. Yeah, it's a hard one for the government because on the one hand, had they stuck to the previous rigorous system of A-level testing, we would have had, you know, some, you know, really disappointed students. But more than that, um, you know, futures that were seriously derailed um, because many have just suffered so much uh, from the loss of education. But what happened with the A-level results is we saw that privately schooled, independently schooled students did just so much better than those in state schools. I think the differential is now about 31 points, where it was 20 percentage points or so before the pandemic in terms of those that get the highest grades um, from from the independent sector. And so that inevitably leads to questions of, you know, is the grade inflation too much? You know, what do you do to try to close that gap? Uh, the government is talking now, um, if reports are to be believed, about changing the grading system. I think that's just sort of, you know, really trying to 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 you know cover up the problem rather than solve it which is that uh there's very very unequal levels of education in britain and uh particularly in parts of the state sector uh it's it's very hard to compete with the resources that the private sector offers and just homes that have laptops and places to work uh and teachers that have smaller class sizes to be dealt with so you know it is a longer term problem i don't think there's going to be a quick fix to it but this year's yeah. a level certainly highlighted the the difference so does it help then to potentially get rid of Gavin Williamson, as is um, being reported in the newspapers, and replace <laughs> him with uh, Kemi Badenoch? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Kemi Badenoch is a huge improvement, but I think Gavin Williamson has lost a lot of um, the confidence of, of people in the education system. He's, you know, there have been a, a enough reversals, and um, you know, and I'm not sure his uh, you know, his way of, of uh, communicating the the goals and the vision of the department is is really coming over. You, you see a lot of resistance from the schools themselves. So I really think his time in, in this cabinet is. Um, Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.